morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you're joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the gospel according to Mark chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. And may the Holy Spirit fill this place. May we all just receive what he has for us. May he give us a robust blessing. Oh, that would be wonderful. We are going to take verses 7 through, pardon me, verses 24 through 37. So if you stand, please, we will read verses 24 through 37. Because of the various translations of the Bible, um, congregational reading is really not an option, so I get to do it out loud. (laughs) And you get to have questions that you will never get to ask. Beginning at verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the little children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out from your daughter. And when she had come to her house, She found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears And he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Please be seated. Odd Methods of God, that's this morning's title for our consideration. And it's not uncommon for God to work in a perplexing way, uh, even a very, very disappointing way, according to our personal standards. Um, I had a friend years ago, all of his theology was probably built into this one statement. He didn't have much else, but he did have this. He told me that his mom told him, he was an older man at this point in life, he said his mom told him that God worked slowly and mysteriously. Well, it doesn't take long to know that. That is true. God does take his time uh, too often for us, But he is right all the time. And he makes sure he gets this into the scripture so that we begin to learn this lesson and begin to learn what there is to learn through God's odd methods. As I mentioned, perplexing on the smaller side, disappointing on the larger side. But in these methods, there are unseen benefits. They are unseen initially, But in time, if we remain faithful, we may find a harvest of information from just waiting for the Lord. Being a bystander to the Lord's work is quite important. It's very significant. In fact, as we go through this section, we have to remember the apostles are bystanders through all that is going on. It is ministering to to them. Peter never forgot it, so he tells it to Mark. And Mark communicates it in such a way that it pulls us right into the moment. It makes us not only interested in what's going on then, but it allows us to relate it to our own lives. We better serve the Lord. So let's take a run of verses. 
of God telling his people that his methods are often odd and perplexing and disappointing, but they are his methods, and, and we are to submit to these things, knowing that he is not only sovereign, but he is love. Well, the first is one that most of us are very familiar with, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Psalm 25, verse 2, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out the matter. Ecclesiastes 3, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So what we're, what we're getting is God is saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do things you don't get. Hang in there. I'm telling you in advance. I know what you're going through. Romans 8.28, another familiar verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Who knows that? Those who belong to the Lord. Because those who do not belong to the Lord do not receive that. They scoff at such revelations from the throne of God. And then one more very popular one that we don't want to lose sight of. As we go through life and we get slammed by things and we just scratch our heads or it just breaks our heart. Isaiah 58, verse 8. And pause before I read it. Remember, this prophet Isaiah ministered for a long time. And he saw a lot of things in his life, good and bad, miraculous and not so miraculous. And yet he's still standing and he's still being uh, God's prophet. And he says to us, God speaking through him, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says Yahweh. We accept that by faith. And that's going to count. Maybe we don't see it now, but it will count. And this morning we have two odd methods before us with Christ ministering to the needs of people that came in contact with him and submitted to him. Verse 24 now. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Well, these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, are cities with an illustrious, though pagan, past. These were two of the uh, ancient Richest, even oldest, amongst the oldest cities in the ancient world, famed for their arts, their work in uh, pottery and glass. And, of course, Tyre was one of the leading cities in the commerce of, of the world in her day. Ezekiel had much to say. In fact, many of the prophets had much to say about Tyre. But Ezekiel's is probably one of the most outstanding prophecies fulfilled in detail in phases. And if you are a student of the Bible, you have to come to learn that many of the prophecies given to us in the Old and New Testament alike are fulfilled in phases. They're not always filled instantly. And this is one of them. So Ezekiel, I don't want to take the time to read all of Ezekiel 26 verses 3 through 5, where uh, the prophet is saying, you're going to be judged higher, and you're going to be leveled, as smooth as a rock. And then there are going to be fishermen that after your ruins have been piled up, they'll stretch their nets out on those ruins and mend their nets and disentangle those nets. Well, in the days of Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar the king sieged uh, Tyre and he leveled mainland Tyre. But just a half a mile offshore was uh, the island Tyre, and he could not get to it. And it was uh, a fortress. It was a palace on the sea, and it continued to thrive for another 240 years. So if you lived in Ezekiel's day and you heard the prophet say Tyre is going to be leveled and fishermen are going to be mending their nets on the debris, you'd say the prophecy failed, but it did not. Alexander the Great comes along, 
And he takes much of the rubble and the ruin that Nebuchadnezzar left behind from mainland Tyre, and he builds a causeway going out a half mile to offshore Tyre. And between that causeway and Alexander's navy and a bunch of other little things here and there, he conquers it, and he levels it. And into modern times, fishermen mended their nets on the debris that were there. And so there's an example of God giving a prophet clear vision of, a, of, a fu- of future events, but it being delayed and apparently being unfulfilled to at least a f- several generations. But God, even though his methods are odd, they are true. And the righteous know it. And so what do we do when we are faced with odd methods of God? We suffer and we wait. We prove our faith that way. Hell has no defense against such opposition to his seeds of doubt. We overcome by just resolving because we know there is enough fact in the Bible to not depart from. There is enough. That's all I need. I don't have to understand every jot and every tittle just enough. And I can live off of that. And thus, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do you do that if you don't understand it all? By faith, built on what you do understand. So, this, he arose from the region of Tyre and Sidon, these cities with rich history, which really, we don't get much of, why did he go up there? Well, that comes now, verse 25. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. Well, again, he seems to have gone way out of his way to come up to Tyre. And this is the only event that we, miraculous event, that we know that took place. We knew he tried to get away from the crowds to get a little rest, but word got around, he's here. And so she seeks him, seeks for him. At some point, this mother realized her daughter's spiritual condition was severe. Matthew, in his parallel account of these events, tell us that it was a severe condition. You'd say, well, any unclean spirit is severe. Yeah, well, there are degrees. And this one seems to be a higher degree of satanic activity. Satan and sin respect nothing. And that is what makes them uh, enemies of God, enemies of God's people. Uh, Really, you know, when you think about it, Satan is not an enemy of God. He's our enemy. And and so he is therefore God's. But in in this sense, uh, if God has has any enemies, it's because he's allowing them to be his enemy. He could just turn them off and snuff them out and end it right just like that. So he uses Satan for his high purpose of populating eternity with those who believe in him sight unseen. And that marks, that's a great distinction between us and the angels. The angels see God, and they have free will. Well, at least they had it as perfected now, and that day was decided when a third of the angels rebelled, and they were booted. Well, I digress. Verse 26 is where we are. It tells us the woman was a Greek Syrophoenician by birth. In other words, she's really Gentile. And that's significant to the story. And, uh, you know, she's uh, under the Syrian rule, and she's uh, from the cities of Tyre and Sidon, Phoenician cities. She's Greek. She kept asking him, it tells us here in verse 26. She's persistent because her need is urgent. Matthew notes that she first addressed him as Lord, son of David. Well, she's a Greek. That's not for her. That's for the Jews. But then as she continued to address him, she addressed him as Lord. And I think that uh, what that brings out to us is she, she, she's sort of clumsy. She knows he's going to help. She's heard about what he has done. She knows this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, is her hope. And that the great principle of life is not race, it is faith. She's got that much. And she knows that he's healed all these people. This sort of reminds us of Rahab. Rahab, she figured it out. Look, these Jews are conquering everybody they come in touch with. And now they're here at Jericho. I'm siding with them. 
Why didn't everybody else figure it out? Well, that's why their judgment is just and upon them. Why didn't the Pharisees figure it out? Why couldn't they see his miracles and understand that he was everything he said he was? Well, she did, taking away their excuse. And so she starts off with, Lord, Son of David. And then as she dialogues, it's Lord, it's Lord. It's this uh, term that recognized his superior uh, status in society. It's a term of respect. She's desperate. The tone is not casual. Mark makes it sound a little casual. Matthew turns up the heat a little bit in his presentation of the story. But she is very desperate at this point. And that's why she keeps asking him. And it says here in verse 26, to cast the demon out of her daughter. In the New Testament, an unclean spirit, a demon, or demon possession, they're they're used interchangeably. They're the same. We believe they're elements of the fallen angels, the third of the angels that Satan swayed to go with him. The Bible doesn't give us too much detail about them, just enough on a need-to-know kind of basis. Uh, These evil spirits, and they are spirits, they're disembodied until they enter someone. Uh, They hate us all. And the Bible teaches that, especially the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people to those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were healed. And that's what those unclean spirits do. They torment us. And these evil uh, spiritual forces and influences are very real, and often they are difficult to, to discern. Not all the time. Sometimes very easy. Because the flesh can do wicked things without any help from the devil. For example, in the flesh a man can kill. But in the flesh alone a man will not cannibalize what he has killed. That requires satanic activity. And we've seen this at work in the world. I mean, we constantly point back to the Second World War. The demonic activity in not only Nazi Germany, but imperial Japan. I mean, the chopping off of heads of of the uh, Chinese and and then putting them in cages like trophies, that's demonic. It's not war. That's wickedness. Unclean spirits, they take the flesh to more extreme levels of irreverence directly aimed, since Christ on his cross and his resurrection, directly aimed at him. Now, Those in the abortion business, you can't tell me they don't have an unclean spirit. I mean, the things, how how can, I don't care how oblivious they may be. This is more than just uh, uh, the carnal activity. This is something that goes to another level. Child abusers, serial killers, others, uh, more noticeably unclean spiritually, and some... Not so obvious. Paul says this to let us know that there are spiritual forces hard at work against us. 1 Corinthians 10. He says, rather the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons because it's possible. It is possible to be in cahoots with demons and not even know it. Now, the Christian has nothing to worry about this. The body is a temple. The house is the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. We're not susceptible to this. As long as we are in Christ, we are protected by Christ. But the world, which scoffs and therefore mishandles the subject entirely, it defies explanation, this spiritual war from a human standpoint. God has to reveal these things to us. It defies explanation from science and uh, psychology and philosophy and medicine. They cannot handle this. This is a spiritual condition. You cannot take an x-ray of someone who, is, who has an unclean spirit and see it on the x-ray. And there it is. Look at that. He's got the horns and everything. Not true. It is spirit. It is unseen. It is invisible. And human power cannot defeat it. Some, in the book of Acts, we are told, tried to take on a man who was demon-possessed. Acts chapter 19. And so they tried to throw him out. They, 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 they called him to come out 
in someone else's name. And so the, the demon responds through the man. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. But who are you? And it continues, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Well, I don't remember in ministry. I know in in life I have seen people who are demon-possessed. But in ministry, I've not confronted them. But I have said to myself, if I do, and they get up in my face, I'm going to knock all their teeth out. I mean, I'm not going to put up with it. Well, maybe you got a different approach. But (laughs) I'm going in with guns. Anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) the fallen angels that likely these characters come from, uh, they followed Satan in their rebellion against God Almighty. After having seen him on the throne, lived in heaven, what we call heaven, and their condition is irrevocable. They are unredeemable. Satan, the Antichrist, the beast, the unclean spirits, the fallen angels, Apollyon, all those characters are doomed. They are not going to get saved. There's a lake of fire for them. And uh, there in Matthew 25, 41, God even tells us it was prepared for them, but the lost will go there too. And uh, their number one deception is about a relationship, a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. How do these demons teach their doctrine? Through people. So we come away from such a verse or a section as this inscription, we say, yep, Uh, That is a reminder of God that we are in spiritual war. And human beings, as we read in chapter 5, one human being can house more demons than 2,000 pigs. God is saying this is serious. And I have not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind and a good right hook. If, 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 you know, (laughs) unless you maybe use pepper spray or something, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, they need humans uh, to host. Matthew chapter 12, uh, this speaks of a demon that is cast out of someone. Then he says, I will return to my house, that is the person that hosted him, from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. So there you have a man that was demon-possessed. Then he is dispossessed. And he is sort of in his right mind. He's organized in his thinking, but he is empty. There is no Lord there to protect him. And so he is refilled seven times worse because that particular demon brings seven more with him. And you say, listen, this is all sci-fi. No, it's not. It's spiritual. And the Bible doesn't hide it from us. It tells us right out. And if you uh, don't believe it, then you have a lot of explaining to do about human behavior. Because there are things that humans can do that are outside human thought. Somebody is manipulating the machine. Paul said it this way, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, power, spiritual wickedness in high places. And on the scripture goes, and revealing to us, one, I think, reason why we don't get a lot about them is because we would be, you know, oh, the devil made me do it. And uh, God is saying, no, your sin made you do it. This one's on you. And even if the devil did, you've opened yourself up to him. So the warnings in Scripture forbidding God's people from tampering with witchcraft and astrology and necromancy and, you know, contacting the dead, having a seance, that's messing with Satan. And we are not to do, uh, there's no other spiritual power we're interested in contacting except the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And that's it. We don't talk to angels. We don't talk to loved ones that have died and gone. We don't pray to Mary. We don't do that stuff. It is forbidden. And it comes with a high consequence if uh, it can because it opens the door 
to demonic activity. And uh, if you want to learn from experience in this area, you may be a fool. Well, I'm not sure. Let me have a seance to find out. It may be the last sensible thing you ever do. Uh, Well, not the last opportunity to do something sensible. Well, that's what I'm saying about unclean spirits because I believe that is much of what the Bible teaches about them. Verse 27, but Jesus said to her, let the little, let the children be filled first for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What an odd reply. She didn't see that coming. My daughter is demon possessed and he says, yeah, well, we're not going to give what goes to the children to puppies. Metaphorically, the children are the Jews, and the puppies are the Gentiles. She is not going to back down, and he loves it. He is extracting from her her faith. And it is, here is an opportunity for her light to shine, for faith to come forward. Again, he's about 70 miles round trip out of Israel in Gentile land. Why? When we have no record of any other activities from him in this, at this time. It is for her. That's why he's there. So if you come as a skeptic to the scriptures, oh, that's harsh, that's mean, I can't follow a Jesus. <laughs> like, you're stupid. Because you're, you're not even open to truth. You've condemned the situation, uh, yourself in a situation that you know nothing of. Israel was the recipient of visions and revelations to share with the world. From the onset, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. The whole world is going to be blessed through you. In other words, God's intention was to reach everyone he could. Long-suffering, willing, none should perish. Isaiah 49. Isaiah brings this back up. He says, indeed, he says, speaking about Messiah, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, that is Messiah, to rise, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is being fulfilled one of many places in the ministry of Christ, but it's being fulfilled right here because Isaiah is saying, That when Messiah comes, it is not enough that he ministers to Israel and to the Jewish people. He is here for all who will come. That's what the prophecy is about. Jesus began his resurrected ministry, you could say, in Jerusalem, the place of the empty tomb. Opportunity for the skeptics. They short walk down to the empty tomb. If he is there, go get him. I mean, it's ridiculous to suggest that a platoon of Roman soldiers was overcome by the apostles. Have you seen those guys? They can't fish. Every time we see them fishing, they catch nothing. Have you? I mean, they just... So we're supposed to believe they just took out this Roman platoon. Uh, I don't think so. So he said to begin in Jerusalem. Luke 24, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Because they had the oracles, the scriptures, the prophecies. They were the link, the tie-in to the Gentiles being reached. This was organized. And it was not to be disorganized. They were to start in Jerusalem because the Jews come first in that sense. Romans chapter 1, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Then he says to the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Not that there's a lesser brand of salvation because they don't get first as a people, but because there is order. There is a system. It comes through the scriptures. Somebody had to hold these scriptures, and they were the ones. Verse 28, I just realized, we got a long way to go. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Her faith gave birth to brilliance. This is what he was after. This is what he was pulling out of her. She knew he would not refuse her. She knew he was 
capable of taking a miserable life and restoring it. And again, if she understood this, what was the excuse of the rabbis? She addressed him as commander of the universe when she called him Lord. We'll take it from Matthew verse, or chapter 15. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. You see the desperation in Matthew's account? She came and worshipped him. There was a lot of faith flowing from this woman. She said, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. There is enough of you and your power and your blessing and your love and your sovereignty to spread without, lo- without anyone suffering. You can, you, Jesus said that one human being has enough self-love to love everyone else and not lose any of their own self-love. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. Problem is, when someone has too much self-love and no other love, that kind of esteemed self becomes very problematic. Well, the dogs were allowed to have what the children did not eat because there was enough, and that is the idea. There was enough of his mercy to go around, even outside of Israel. And at this time in history, when we read these stories in the Bible... And we come to Christ in a similar situation. We say, Lord, help my daughter. She's severely demon-possessed. And he said, no, she's just lazy. (laughs) Oh, whatever, right? Even if she is, we don't see him always act so quickly. He drags his feet. And mothers have gone to their graves, not getting their prayers answered. But they've also gone to the throne of heaven. Trusting him, believing in him, because that's what it's about. And when we get there, it will all come together. I have a list of questions when I get to heaven that I'm not going to ask. (laughs) Because it is going to all be satisfied. And we know that by faith. And that faith comes from enough exposure to things he's revealed and made solid to us. And this, again, is the crime that lays upon those who reject and thumb their nose at him. Verse 29. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. He does, in Scripture, the desperate parents come to him in the New Testament. There in Mark chapter 5 and Luke 7 and Luke 9 and John 4 and here in Mark 7. And he does not ignore them. The Gentiles also came. He did not ignore them either. Jesus honored her Gentile faith in him in front of Jewish witnesses because it wasn't all about her. It was not all about her and her daughter, though they were very important, as important. But it was also to the bystanders. These odd methods, they had to see this. Not only did he draw a confession from her, He was eroding Jewish exclusivism that was in them so that they could then be used to reach Gentiles too. And we are the fruit of such uh, exhibitions of truth from our Lord. God's methods may appear odd, but they are sound. They are spiritually invincible. And she did not have to become a Jew, to benefit from the care of the Jewish Messiah. That is one of the great lessons. Further developing the theme that God's kingdom reaches all that will submit to it. This is the story of of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the story of Job. It's the story of Jethro. There there are others that uh, heard the truth and surrendered to it without becoming Jewish. He had already given a glimpse uh, to his apostles of the church to come without Judaism. Matthew 7, verse 15, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. That flew in the face of Jewish dietary law. And he just laid it out there and left it to be developed later on through a series of miracles and teachings from himself and men like the apostle Paul. 
so ingrained was Judaism clouding their understanding of reaching lost souls that when Peter was, when God began to deal with Peter to send him to Gentiles, he gave him a vision three times. That's what it took. And it still didn't register. And in that vision, he said, what God has called cleanse, you must not call common. Three times he had to repeat that. And again, Peter struggled to understand. I think even in America, we have Christians who, they, they have a sense of family and what is good and what, who Jesus is. But they really don't have a burden for lost souls. They have a burden that maybe go, goes as far as the kitchen table. And that's about it. But they're really not into reaching lost souls. They're not reach into reaching, unless it just comes to them. And this is what Christ was faced with his apostles. They had no burden for Gentiles. The Gentiles would never have been reached had Jesus not started with things like this. Do you think that Paul ever forgot this lesson? Do you think it, it never came up again with Peter? Well, Peter's telling the story to Mark. Decades later, to find out what God wants and then to go try to do it should consume our lives without making us what, was, what would be called fanatic, fanatics, uh, disconnected from reality. We are supposed to be more connected with reality than anyone else, especially spiritual reality. Verse 30, and when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. She had no record of her questioning him. Off she went. How beneficial to this mother and the daughter to not only be freed from the demon, but to also have Christ preached and ministered to her the way he did. She's going to tell this story to her daughter. I went and I sought him. I called him the son of David. It just didn't work. And I kept asking him. I kept asking him, Lord, Lord. Then he told me that I'm not going to give what goes to the children, to the little puppies. And I then responded, and those two are going to talk about that a long time. Not only educating the mother and the witnesses, but the subsequent readers of this story, such as ourselves. And as it will be with the next miracle he's going to, that we come to in, in, when we get to verse 31 in just one moment. Another odd miracle. I don't think any of the disciples when he said this to her, wanted to interfere and say, what is going on? What's up with that, the puppies and dogs? Why didn't you just heal the demon? I mean, <laughs> they had to just stand there with these goofy looks on their faces that we get when, we can't, when we're powerless. And verse 31 now, again departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So now he comes again to the east side of Galilee, where the Gentiles were now a dominant people. Uh, nothing else said about Tyre and Sidon as far as his works. And so he leaves one non-Jewish region to come into another non-Jewish re uh, region. No protest from the disciples. In fact, this is the same part of the world that he delivered the maniac, uh, the demonic maniac, uh, demoniac, you could say, uh, there and the pigs and that whole story. And let's just briefly review this because Jesus said something very interesting to this man. The man asked, can I go with you? And Jesus said, no. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all were amazed. Did you catch that? Verse 31, he's in the region of Decapolis. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 5, telling the story that he proclaimed in Decapolis. Well, last time he was there, the people chased him away. How dare you kill our pigs to save a man? And they asked him to go and he left. But he didn't leave without a seed. He told this man, go proclaim it. So now he comes back and everybody's waiting for him. What lessons are built into that for us? What, what is there for us to read about and understand that we can plant seeds for him to come along and do great things with what we were doing, what we were proclaiming? Verse 32, Then they brought to him one who was deaf 
and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. Why? Because they had the demoniac, well, no longer a demoniac, he's delivered. They had him proclaiming all these things about Christ. The people believed it. He comes and they're, they're on it. Hey, here's someone, we need you to help this poor man. And so he did his work well in preaching Christ. To see such things and to remain stiff-necked is to forfeit salvation. Makes perfect sense. It's one of the most reasonable laws in the universe. This is the first of two miracles that Mark only records. We'll get the other one in chapter 8 where Jesus uh, deals with a blind man in a similar way to dealing with this deaf-mute. Verse 33 now. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. <laughs> Could you imagine standing there watching this? What, what is that? I mean, there are other times, I mean, he's walked on water. Sure, this is just a walk in the park. Why do you have to do all the trauma? Another method of God in caring for those in need, that's what it is. It's an odd method. His methods are not cookie cut. Because of the invisible, invisible forces and conditions at work, we don't know what's always going on, but we submit to it. And when we submit, we begin to get it. Whether or not we get it, he's going to do what he does. Did he spit in a display of contempt towards what sin has done to man? Some commentators believe, and even some translations believe, he actually spit on his hand and touched the man's tongue. Biohazard! We don't do that today. You can go to jail for doing this. Imagine a doctor and touching, touching your tongue. Malpractice. I mean, I get sick of watching them spit in baseball. It's like, how old are these guys? Well, was he teaching that what comes out of his mouth has healing for what comes out of our mouth? Because this man can't speak. But he's going to speak. And the day will come soon when they will spit on Christ. When he gets to the blind man, he's going to spit on his eyes. <laughs> it's like this is total. Uh, it's odd. But we don't hear of any of the, of the disciples saying, what's up with that, Lord? Um, can I do that? <laughs> We don't find Paul going through Athens spitting on people to heal them. And so you come to these scriptures, verses, and you say, you know, I've got too much truth to waste it away on not understanding something like this. Verse 34. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened, the Aramaic language, the vernacular of the people. Remember, again, Peter likely, somebody's telling the story. We believe it to be Peter. Someone was there. They remembered these things. They remembered the look on the woman's face when he said no, initially. And they remembered, the, you know, watching this whole thing unfold. Then they remembered trekking across, all the way across to the east side of Galilee, and then having watch him spit and sigh. What was that? It was emotional. It was a dramatic moment. They knew what he could do by this time. And to see the Lord go, it's really groaned. It's going, have what sin has done. But he, he didn't need to say a word. At first, he looks up to heaven. What lessons are there for us? He looks up to heaven. Then he spoke the word. He looks to the throne of his father. And... <clears throat> This sigh, perhaps due to the spiritual resistance in the unseen world to release this man, because there were other healings where there was opposition in the act of deliverance. One young lad convulsed and rolled, the demon throwing him down in the process because they're arrogant and they're irreverent. When you see someone towards uh, demonstrate irreverence towards Christ, you know there's demonic activity. I remember when I was irreverent towards Christ. It wasn't the Holy Spirit in me. It was the absence of the Holy Spirit. And had I continued on that line, I fear to even think about it. Was, uh, <clears throat> was this groaning uh, just a, 
sort of letting mankind know that God hurts too when we hurt. I believe it's a combination of those things, verse 35 and more. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly without speech therapy. You know, so you would think the tongue muscles not developed. You've got to, you know, going to have to work, you know, uh, my fair lady, you know, Henry Iggins. Uh, you're just going to have to learn how to speak proper English. It's, but he doesn't have to go through any of that because there was no English. <laughs> anyway, verse 36, and he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Uh, yeah, how could you suppress this kind of stuff? On the surface, Jesus appears to be suppressing his own ministry. Have you ever met a Christian that was indiscriminate in sharing their faith and they needed to just shut up? They were casting pearl, but nobody wants to hear your mouth. In fact, people are paying us money to shut you up for them. Okay, not really, but that, that would be a... Never mind. Uh, so, you, you, I don't know if you've met them, but I have, and they do more damage than they do good. They're not led by the Spirit. They're led by some sort of self-satisfaction that there I preach the gospel. I must be brave for Christ or something like that, but without leading. Well, these people, a little differently, they're, they're just excited over what was happening. And Christ is teaching us how to be careful with what God has done. Yes, he did the miracles, but I don't want you going around blabbing this right now. Whereas he told the man before, I want you to go proclaim it. Because he knows the intricacies. Some things make no sense to us because we lack sense in that area. Some just lack sense. I hope, you know, I hope it's not us, right? Well, we must submit to odd methods of God, whether we see through them or not. And that's what such a great work of the Holy Spirit is when he tells us, don't say anything. And you just know you've got what to say, but he, he stops you. He knows best. There have been a few times in the pulpit that I've sensed the Holy Spirit say, don't say that. And I say it anyway, and then you don't laugh. <laughs> No, no serious matter. I mean, nothing has been tragic except on the ride home. Uh, it's just knowing it wasn't him. It was me. But it seemed like the right thing to say at the time. And knowing he, that he, it was him telling me, don't. And so now, so often, I, I hear him, don't say that. Maybe I, there's a pet sin that I'd like to go after that one of you were doing. <laughs> And I just want to, you know, hammer this thing. And he says, no. And, and so it comes out some other sermon uh, when he says go. But it comes out softer with more effect, effectiveness. And if that's true for me, it should be true for you too. Why should you get the breaks and not me? Anyway, uh, having been touched by Christ, these people did have something to shout about, to witness, and they were doing it. Yet, uh, as noble as that is, it was still disobedient because his word was don't do it. And they did it anyway. And I think that's one of the lessons for us, the odd methods of Christ. We read this story and we say, okay, there are times when we're supposed to just not broadcast as we would like to. And may we not allow our emotions to supersede his will. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. How many times have in my life I've submitted to this verse, he has done all things well, when in my flesh I don't agree, but I submit. That is the mark of a believer, because an unbeliever won't do that. Any of you wrestling with, well, am I saved, am I not saved? Get that settled so you can be moving forward in strength. You accept the Lord Jesus Christ? As he reveals himself, you believe he died for your sins and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father, is returning again with the saints, you're saved. And don't let anybody come and take that from you. And don't have that salvation with guilt. You know, you Christian can ask God for a new job. He gives it to him. Then they feel guilty for getting the job. That's not right. Don't do that. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Um, Rejoicing in Christ is not for amateurs. 
You know that Christian is new, a new Christian, just all bubbly and everything. You want to slap them? <laughs> you give them time. They're going to want to slap other people that are coming along bubbly and everything. Once they find out that this Christian life is, is, is uh, knocked down, drag out at times. Well, I don't think anyone, again, asked him about his methods. What's up with the spitting, Lord? And when we come to chapter 8 and he spits on the guy's eyes... Uh, they're just going to be quiet and write about it. And it did, you know, Peter doesn't say, well, here's what it meant. He just leaves it there for us. I close with this verse from Hebrews 11, talking about the faith. Faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. And then he goes on and says, by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. It's by trusting God that we admire men like Abraham and Jeremiah and Peter and Paul. We look at those who trust God and we want to learn ourselves how are we going to trust him. It's worth it. And not only do we want to do it ourselves, we want to lead others into it also. So the odd methods of God are not something that chases us away from our faith. Nothing can do that. Let's pray. Our Father... Again, the lessons off the scripture, very much present in every age without exception, very much relevant, and we thank you for them. We thank you that you allow us to be students of what you have said and what you have done, of what you will say and what you will do. We applaud it. We are not worthy, but we sure are appreciative. If you've been listening or watching And as I've been speaking, God has been speaking to you, perhaps through me, perhaps independently. Perhaps you've not opened your heart to Christ ever. You have a chance right now. You may not get another one. You have a chance right now to enter into fellowship with God the Creator and depart from fellowship with the world demonic influences with everything that's not right. If you make this prayer in earnest, God receives you because he has established this system. It is organized and arranged by him. If you confess the Lord Jesus as Lord, if you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments and I come to you and you alone for forgiveness because there's no one else who died for me to take my sentence upon himself. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, and I ask you from this day forward to be the Lord over my life, and I give it to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer this morning, whether in the church building or online, may they not hesitate to make their confession known when the invitation is given. In Jesus' name, amen.